Good morning. It's Monday morning, the 14th of February. It is wonderful to have your company. My name's Evan Wallace. What a weekend. It was very, very hot. How did you go surviving the heat? I was pretty lucky. Over the last couple of days, I've been down at Wilson's Prom. It was beautiful, beautiful part of the world with those incredible forests and mountains and that coastline. A three-day hike, two nights away, and yeah, it was good for the soul. Good to be disconnected from um, from internet for a few days and from modern technology and just uh, having a wonderful time in nature. That's very much a theme on today's show, looking at nature and the environment. On this morning's 3CR Breakfast, you'll be hearing the latest developments on what's happening at the Collingwood Community Farm. We'll also be talking about fossil fuels and sport. We'll be talking too about AGL's decision to continue into the indefinite future on with the use <clears throat> of coal-fired power, and that's the environment side of the show too. Um, also, you'll be hearing the latest from the electorate of Chisholm. For those of you who have been listening to 3CR over, well, over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we've been profiling different key electorates in various parts of Australia. This time, we bring it right back to Melbourne in the second most marginally held Liberal electorate. And it'll be great to hear perspectives of a few locals on what they're hoping to see be addressed at this year's federal election. Right now, though, it's time for, well, you know that I'm a bit of an Eric Bibb fan and love his tunes. I love his joyful voice. I like the sound and I like the message that's there as well, too. This is a song. It's the title track from his album, A Ship Called Love. Hope you enjoy it. Hope your week's getting off to a good start. It's lovely to have your company today. Well, there's a ship called love Getting ready to sail People, I know you know it's time To get on board By the stars up above We'll steer through storm and gale And by the grace of God We'll land on that peaceful shore We need every hand on deck You know the seas are gonna get rough But love's the right stuff To get us over Well there's a place for everyone No matter what race or creed Might have to leave our possessions behind Travel light No need to push No need to shove Cause we're all one family Brothers and sisters help each other It's gonna be You know the seas are gonna get rough But love's the right stuff Oh yes it is to get us over And we need every faithful heart Every faithful heart Otherwise Love's the only ship That can make it across 
the sea. But love the to get us Well, there's a ship called love getting ready to sail. And people, I know you know it's time to get on board. Yes, I know you know it's time. I know you know it's time to get on Mr. Harry Bibb with a ship called Love. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. Now it's time for the news. United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has defended the evacuation of the US Embassy in Kiev. With 100,000 Russian troops located at the border, he has described the threat of a Russian invasion as being imminent. Meanwhile, countries such as Australia, Germany and Canada have followed suit in closing their embassies with American security reports indicating that Russia may invade Ukraine within days. The crisis comes eight years after Russia annexed the island of Crimea, which has led to a period of fighting between the Ukraine government and Russian rebels over this time period. On the theme of embassies, the United States announced over the weekend that it would be reopening its embassy in Solomon Islands after it was closed in 1993. The embassy reopening is part of the US government's strategy to counter growing Chinese influence across small Pacific island states through increasing its aid program and diplomatic efforts in the region. It comes after Secretary Blinken made the first visit by a Secretary of State to Fiji in over 40 years. And in news that should be truly alarming for all environment lovers, last week the koala was listed as endangered in New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT, with habitat being ravaged and bushfires having a huge impact on available land. The species, which was first listed as vulnerable in 2012, has experienced devastation through the likes of the Black Fire Saturday bushfires, which was estimated to, in some cases, have reduced its populations in places such as New South Wales by 25%. The Australian Koala Foundation has estimated that there may not be more than 60,000 koalas left in the wild. And in more pleasing news in Australia, the number of individuals with COVID-19-linked deaths continues to fall. Yesterday, the country recorded 47 COVID-19-related deaths. It's a number that's gone down from a peak of over uh, over 100 two weeks ago. We're all hoping that it's a trend that continues as state governments openly flag the easing of restrictions. That's 3CR News for Monday the 14th of February. There's a lot happening there and we like to bring news from all different parts of the community and different parts of the globe. We also really like to shine the light on issues that really focus on social justice and give a voice to those who well those who don't normally get a platform when thinking about where media sits at the moment. This week, it is Subscriber Week. We're wanting to make it as easy as possible for every out, everyone out there to become a 3CR subscriber. If you would like to become a subscriber, go to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. I'll give you a few more details about how to subscribe as the um, show goes on and talk a little bit more about what that involves, but really wanting to encourage everyone who's out there to 
go online, become a 3CR subscriber because it is through the community of passionate members that build 3CR that we can be such a impactful media organisation. This is Monday. Mm, I'm a big Melbourne music fan and one of the best gigs that I've seen over my existence on this planet was a gig by Paul Dempsey. It would have been almost 10 years ago now and if those of you aren't so certain about who Paul Dempsey is, perhaps you'll know Something for Kate and Something for Kate, legendary Australian band, peaked big time, late 1990s, early noughties. Paul Dempsey had a few solo albums after that, but the gig that I saw was Paul Dempsey at the Corner Hotel. It's a place where you get really, really good acoustics, a great intimate atmosphere, and seems to bring out the best of all musicians who play there. And... At the time, there are a lot of songs from uh, a recent album that he'd released, but always seems to be the way for me that when a artist pulls together a a song or a co- of a um, one that's already been recorded, a cover that mm, knocks you off your feet, that seems to be what sticks. And this is a song that was performed at that gig. It is the famous "Ashes to Ashes" from David Bowie. This is. Well, it's something for Kate's cover. It's an acoustic cover of Ashes to Ashes. We all know it's a bit of a play on David Bowie's Space Oddity. I hope you're having a good morning. It's 7.10am. Here is Ashes to Ashes from Something for Kate. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast.
And if COVID has shown anything, no government in Australia has had a planned approach to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee-jerk. So whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation, inequity and racism. None of these things are being planned or addressed in any long-term way. It's all stopgap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market. Subscribe to 3CR, workers' rights and union struggles. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. It is that easy to become a 3CR subscriber. Call the station on 9419 8377. And just in case you're worried out there, I won't be putting you to air. It's just a matter of uh, getting your details behind the scenes so that we can put you down as a subscriber. Or also do go online, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. It's an excellent way to be involved in the community and to also shape how the station is run. It's uh, really, really important that if you're a keen listener out there that you do subscribe and we want as many people out there to be as part of the 3CR community shaping um, shaping 3CR as we go into 2022. You are listening to Monday Breakfast. My name's Evan Wallace. Before that, you just heard the incredible cover of Ashes to Ashes from Something for Kate. Hope that you're having a good morning out there, uh, whether you're getting ready to go to work, uh, to, to uni, whether it's a, a day at the, around the house, whether it's a creative day, whether it's a day that might have a few different challenges and a, a bit of a life admin. Could be all sorts of possibilities that uh, Monday the 14th of February presents, but um, whatever today throws up, I hope it's starting off well enough for you all the same. Um it's always great to hear the perspectives of different Australians and always good to hear what's on people's minds when we're in an election year because it's one of the fascinating things about this country that we live in that it's shaped by an absolute patchwork of different voices and views and perspectives and as I said at the start of today's show, there's a, a real in, environmental theme on today's show, and you're about to hear from two women who live in the electorate of Chisholm talking about their hopes for the year and their hopes for the 2022 election. And both Jenny and Mieta, who you'll hear, have very different backgrounds and um, different experiences, but for the two of them, a lot of their concerns and a lot of their focus does come back to the environment. Why is all this critical? Why is it critical to hear the likes of the voices of Mieta and, and Jenny? Well, they're both Mount Waverley residents. And if you're not too familiar with Mount Waverley, it really very much sits in the centre of Melbourne's southeast and east. It's about 30 minutes by train to the CBD, and it's the in the heart of the electorate of Chisholm, which is the second most marginally held Liberal electorate with the MP Gladys Liu holding the seat by 50.57% of the two-party preferred vote. So really just a few thousand votes in it. So when it 
listening to the likes of Mietta and, and Jenny. It's their voices and, and their views which will shape the direction of this year's federal election. So first up, it's Jenny. She's a retiree and she's going to be telling me about what she loves about Mount Waverley, her hopes for the year and also too what she'd like to see addressed at this year's federal election. This is 3CR Breakfast. First question for you, Jenny, is how would you describe Mount Waverley to someone who'd never been here before? I suppose because I've been here for over 50 years, it's, uh, it's become an aged area. More people, perhaps over 65, 70, than of course there were years ago. And not a lot of young children, certainly not in my street anymore, but there were. Yeah. Yep. So a place where there's been changing demographics attached to it. Any other characteristics that you'd attach to the suburb? Oh, probably the shopping centre. We've got about nine coffee shops, which of course I think is wonderful, but that means we've changed from perhaps homeware shops and those sorts of shops to more just food-oriented, I suppose. But the rest of the place is fairly similar. I mean, there's a great community centre, library, sporting facilities if you're interested. So... Generally, it's probably stayed the same, apart from the population and the, perhaps the shopping centre. And you've been here for over 50 years. There must be a few things that you really love about the area then. Oh, well, I'm lucky in that I live very close to the station and the shop. So where I live is great. Oh, and it's got everything that I need. I can get to golf, I can get to all the things I want to do. So that's why. That's great. I'm happy to hear it. We're at the start of 2022. People use this time of year to set plans up for the year ahead to put different resolutions in place, they set different goals. How about for yourself, any sort of resolutions for the year? Probably not resolutions, uh, just changes in what I plan to do. Since I retired, I've gone overseas a lot to sort of bucket list places, so I can't do that anymore. New Zealand's the only place that I haven't been to that I'm resolved to get to, and more around Australia. Mm, But other than that... It's a big country and a lot to... Plenty to see, yeah. You talked about change plans. How have the last couple of years been for you with the pandemic? Look, I'm very lucky. I've got a great family and friends and and that's the other thing about Mount Waverley. We've got great walking tracks. I can walk for miles, kilometres if I want to and so I've been able to keep active and, yeah, it's been good. This is a bit of a cheeky question, but one thing that will occur this year in 2022 is a federal election. Any thoughts or hopes as to what issues you'd like to see be discussed at the election? Yeah, oh, look, always climate change. I've got children who are very motivated about that. And also the refugee situation. I'd like that to see, see that resolved much quicker, any of that. They shouldn't be in detention for, you know, donkey's years. That's just inhumane. But, yeah... The refugee situation and the climate change, I'd like to see that really worked out. And a bit of a philosophical one to finish. Are you feeling hopeful, optimistic or pessimistic about where the country is going this year? Oh, look, I think we're lucky. We've got so much here. There are those, you know, that have lost their jobs and that will be... I can't imagine what that will be like for those people financially. For people like me, retirees, I think financially we're probably not too badly off. We're not travelling, so we're not spending as much, all of that sort of thing. But, look, I'm hopeful. Yep. Good to hear it. Thank you so much for chatting with me. 3CR Breakfast, that was Jenny talking about her hopes and views for this year and what she'd like to see addressed at this year's federal election. Now we'll hear from Mietta, who works in the local news agency at the Mount Waverley Shopping Centre. She's a young person, 
early 20s. Uh, she's experienced lockdown like the rest of Melbourne and it's had a big impact for her. Someone who's really finding her feet within the community and finding her feet within Melbourne. She talks about the impact that lockdowns had on her, her hopes for the election and really importantly why she'd like to see more climate action taken. This is 3CR Breakfast and here is Mieta in Mount Waverley as we look at the voices, views and perspectives of people in the electorate of Chisholm. First question for you, Mieta, is how would you describe Mount Waverley to someone who wasn't at all familiar with the area? Um, Oh, it's a lovely area. Um, It is full of really friendly people um, and it's very community-based. Um, it's just warm and just so delightful. And that's what you love about it the most is the community and the people? Yeah, definitely. The people are probably my favourite. Everyone is just so lovely. Yeah. No complaints, really. I like to hear that. That's really, really wonderful. It's the beginning of the year and people are putting in place plans and they have goals or resolutions. Do you have any? Oh, not really. Probably just to wake up earlier. (laughs) Enjoy the day a bit more, I think, when we've been in isolation for so long. Um, Just utilising my time a bit more um, and and just getting out a bit more since we can now. Um, As a young person, I think that's really important. I agree completely. You talked about the the last couple of years. How have they been for you? Yeah, they've been okay. They've been pretty quiet, Um, I think. Just um, my generation, um, I think, have really just relaxed um we haven't been going out obviously as much um it's been a lot of time spending with family um obviously still living at home which has been not a bad thing it's been nice but it's it's been very uneventful i'd say it's a good summary of it all um this year's an election year any hopes or thoughts on what you'd like to see being debated and discussed at the federal election um i'd probably say uh, a massive issue that we're dealing with obviously is climate change um it is something that is just the big elephant in the room i think um and if it isn't dealt with um, a person of my age is just super scared of what the future holds and obviously that is our future um so as a young person it is very important that this issue is discussed um so Yeah, I'd say probably climate change. Um, And, yeah, there just seems to be such a divide at the moment in the country. So I think um, just a togetherness um, and, yeah, the state's probably coming together a bit more. It's very, yeah, it's very important. And last question as people come into the store is, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the direction the country's heading in as we, uh, yeah, bark on another year? Yeah, I'd say um, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think as a retail worker, you kind of get a real understanding about what people are facing at the moment. Um, and I think from just from being here since the start of the year i think people are really optimistic about this year and they're dealing a lot better with the pandemic as a whole they're a lot more flexible um and it is becoming just a day-to-day routine for people um so yeah i'm optimistic i think people are adjusting to life it is as it is now great thanks so much for chatting with me Mieta. that's all right thank mm-hmm. you Cheers. 
And that was Mieta. You heard Mieta, and before that, it was Jenny talking about their hopes and views and perspectives for this year's election, a bit about life in Mount Waverley for people who aren't so familiar with the electorate of Chisholm, what it looks like there. We'll hopefully hear from a few more Chisholm residents as we go through towards this year's election. And, yeah, really great to hear that underlying passion that's there for environmental action seems to be a major thing that's on the mind for folk who are living in and around mount waverley this is 3cr and on 3cr well we play music that you love a great mix of musical genres from opera to celtic folk to jazz and nostalgia to hip-hop marching bands noise and electronica it's really a mixed bag here where we're wanting to profile and, and feature as many different types of music as we can if any of those genres that you've heard over the journey on 3cr really appeal to you then we want you to subscribe to 3cr it's very easy 3cr.org.au slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377 so on the theme of good music here is mia dyson with her song when the moment comes it's a top song it's from her album um uh, the moment and uh, 2012 tune enjoy it it's got a lot of passion a lot of verb it's 3cr breakfast
Mia Dyson with When the Moment Comes. What a stirring tune. This is 3CR Breakfast. My name is Evan Wallace. It is Monday morning. It's Monday the 14th of February, which means that this morning there'll be a picket line at the Collingwood Community Gardens. Dreadful news over the last week that the Collingwood Community Gardens are set to be demolished. It's a um, yeah, it's a real tragedy for the community, for the individuals from low-income backgrounds, from multicultural backgrounds, from who are often elderly, who have looked after and cared and nurtured for these plots for many, many years. Um, it's it's a dreadful loss, and we're wanting to really draw attention to what is ahead now there's a picket line there are protests you're about to hear some audio from the weekend from a rally at the Collingwood Community Gardens with one of the plotters and then also City of Yarra Councillor Steve Jolly so you'll be hearing the latest development how you can get down and and also support the efforts uh, to save these incredible gardens hopefully later on the show we'll be hearing from Annie as well who hosts uh, 3CR Breakfast on Saturday that's all ahead. This is some audio from the rally on the weekend with news that the Collingwood Community Gardens are set to be demolished and the fight and last-minute uh, desperate efforts to ensure that they can be saved at 3CR Breakfast. Hi, I'm Linda. Um, I became a plotter in 2017, which is really a blessing to me because I came here and very new and I have no one and uh, I only have my husband and uh, when we finally got our plot I got the community become my family here and it's a place where I grow plants and share food helping each other in working bees and helping elderly people who are unwell, watering our friends' garden while uh, they are away on holiday. And uh, there was another gardener who will look after their garden for three months because of the husband being ill and she cannot come down to water it. And we have our friend here uh, has to go back to... uh, Vietnam to look after her sister and she was she asked me to help her with uh, the, her, her plot for three months and it ended up one year until she came back from uh, because of COVID and the, the garden means so much to me and, and, and to us all and it just it's really heartbreaking that we will lose our community if this garden is being bulldozed. Please give it back to us. The misuse of Victoria's excellent Occupational Health and Safety Act, probably the best Occupational Health and Safety Act in the Western world, the misuse of that act to defend what they're trying to do. The plotters exposed the misuse of that several months ago when they said, well, it's really unsafe, there's snakes, there's, uh, there's nails, we have to clear you all out, it's going to be very expensive, so bye-bye, go away. And the CFMEU came in, loyal supporters of the potters, and said, well, we'll fix it. It's a three-quarter of an acre plot. We literally 
clean up building sites on a daily basis, 10, 20 times bigger than this, we'll do it for free. And we went, oh no, we can't have that. So we then knew at that point of time that the use or the misuse of the OHS Act was exactly that. It was a cover for what they actually want to do. Can you imagine, by the way, if, and it's something I know a little bit about because I am a CFMU member and I do work in the construction industry, every time you saw a dodgy building site, the logic of management here is that you have to knock down the whole building to make it safe. When you see a dodgy building site, you make it safe. You put experts in there, you put workers in there, and you make it safe. You don't knock the whole thing down. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, it seems to me that the farmers, the plotters are asking for three things. First of all, is end the lockout. And let's work together. The committee of management, the state government, the council, the CFMU, but most importantly, the plotters together to make safe what is unsafe at the present moment of time. Let's, let's do that. That can only happen if the lockout ends. The second demand, the second demand is end the secrecy. Why is everything so secret? If you are proud of your vision for the future, if you've got a better idea for that three quarter of an acre plot than what's currently there, that's fine. Put it on the table, tell the media, tell the council, tell the state government, tell our federal member, Adam Bant, tell most importantly, the community and the plotters. Why are you so secret about it? That is very suspicious and very fishy. The third thing, and this is the compromise that I think we need to be looking at, is autonomy. When Ceres, the most, one of the most beautiful inner city spaces here in Melbourne in the northern suburbs recently redeveloped their site, they did it with the plot holders, not against the plot holders. And you know what, the plot holders is just one small section of this site. What's wrong with you, the Committee of Management, undertaking whatever secret vision that you seem to have elsewhere on this site, but let the plot holders stay. Let the plot holders stay and have autonomy within, if you like, the broader plot. But it's a long way from a compromise at the moment. The state government last week, and we read about this because it was on our local member Richard Wynne's Facebook page, that's how we have to learn about things nowadays, it wasn't through open discussion, have given the Committee of Management over $800,000 to clear this site off, which by the way, is very, very expensive. We used to joke at the council that when you go in for a bid at the council, you put an extra zero on the end. It's almost the same here because the plotters themselves have said in a, in, in a documented uh, um, a funding uh, um, uh, uh, document that they could clear the whole site for about $125,000. But anyway, leaving that aside, $800,000, the state government have financed the bad policy of the Committee of Management. And in 48 hours time, the plan is for the bulldozers to come in and clear that site. And once they clear that site, it's all over. Because then they will decide who comes back. They will decide who doesn't come back. And what we will see is the commercialization of that plot, where we'll have one farm making kale and shallots for all the trendy cafes in the inner city. But if you're a public housing tenant, if you're a woman, if you're a poor person, it'll be like going through the eye of a needle to get a plot on, on that site. It's quite clear. It's absolutely clear. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so ashamed of their policy, they would put it out on the table for public um, consultation and discussion. So what do we need to do? It's quite clear now that petitions and even rallies like this and pleading to these people is not going to work in the next 48 hours. We have to do 
what this community in this area did 10 years ago when the then Liberal state government attempted to bring in the East-West Tunnel uh, 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 where the locals protested, not just with petitions and signs and placards and rallies, but they literally organized picket lines every single morning. And I think what needs to happen on Monday is that we all need to come back. All of us who can need to come back over the weekend and on Monday and stand in front of those plots and stop any trade, uh, tradies, any um, companies who want to come in and bulldoze that plot in a peaceful, direct action. That is the only way we can stop that. Because at the moment, the state government think that they're going to get votes out of this. They think that this is a very popular thing to give over $800,000 of your money to the Committee of Management to destroy the plot holders. We have to show to the Labour Party in government here in Victoria that this is not popular, this is unpopular. That the vast majority of public housing tenants, the vast majority of the, the broader community in this area, the vast majority of the council, the vast majority of the plot holders and the people who come here every single day, and most importantly from their perspective, the vast majority of voters in the upcoming state election do not look with joy at anyone who wants to destroy these plot holders. And if you we want to go definitely, road, definitely don't look at joy with joy at those actions and efforts to destroy and bulldoze the Collingwood Community Gardens. This is 3CR Breakfast. If you would like to support those who are down at the picket line today, those who are trying to save the gardens, they're there. All the incredible people are out there at the gardens. It's not too far from the Abbotsford Convent. If you're looking for a reference point, uh, a short walk from um, Victoria Park Station. And everyone there would like to see your face, would love your support. And um, hopefully we'll hear later on the show from Annie about uh, what is happening there at the gardens and how you can get involved and support the efforts to save this incredible patch in Melbourne. It's 3CR Breakfast. We love playing Melbourne artists and here is Maple Glider. She's touring a bit over the next month, uh, including a performance at the Queenscliff Pie the Pier Festival. Um, it's her tune, Good Thing. I love her voice. I think it's uh, really, really magical. Uh, has a, a huge level of depth to it. It's ultimately a, a, a positive and, and, and beautiful tune. Um, but there's just always that tinge of melancholy when someone can, I suppose, evoke such a, a special sound such uh, that Maple Glider can do. It's 3CR Breakfast, 7.41am. Coming up after the break, you'll be hearing from Brett Hutchins about the link and relationship between fossil fuels and sport. Here's Good Thing by Maple Glider. There are no I have to say. Before you came 
3CR Monday Breakfast, Maple Glider there with Good Thing. What a beautiful tune. It is Monday. It's Monday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR, whether it is online, 3cr.org.au, where you can also subscribe for Subscriber Week, or you might be listening to the show sometime in the future on a podcast. I hope the stretch between now and whenever you're actually listening to this show is, uh, has been a good one. Uh, or you could be listening just conventionally through, well, maybe conventional as a word, who knows whether it is, but perhaps uh, in our sort of uh, traditional way on 855am on the radio, whether it's in the car, going to work, whether you're at home starting the day, great to have your company on 3CR Breakfast. Companies, organisations, events, products and politicians are all judged by the company that they keep. And this is especially true of the individuals and organisations that they decide to accept money from. If you're a cricket fan, you would have seen the Alinta Energy logo brandished over the Australian Test cricket team's uniform as the sport's major sponsor. 
One thing you may not have been aware of is that the parent company of Alenta, Pioneer Sale Holdings, is still the sixth highest carbon emitting corporation in Australia. Joining us to talk about the link between cricket and fossil fuels is Professor Brett Hutchins from Monash University. Thanks for coming on the show, Brett. Morning. Good to be here. Great that you're here. Brett, what inspired you to write an article about the connection between cricket and climate change? Uh, In the middle of an Australian Research Council-funded project examining the relationship between sport and the environment, and that's looking at everything from the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework through to the role of athletes, uh, leagues, of course, and, of course, sponsorship, you know, falls into that. And Cricket Australia, alongside... The the former partnership between Santos and Tennis Australia, or Santos and the the tour down under, comes into that equation. So that's where the that's where the the focus emerged from. Fantastic. Now, in this article that you published in the conversation just the other week, you've looked at the connection from a a few different angles, and one of them is actually how climate change is, is actually affecting how the game is being played, with so many matches being affected by it severe heat. Yeah, and if you look around the world, um, cricket's affected in a different way, of course, depending on region. But there's an excellent report called the Hit for Six report, which was produced by Basis in Britain, which is a sustainability and sport organisation. And they went around the world looking at, you know, the effect of cricket in the West Indies, for example, which, of course, um, hurricanes. Um, and flooding there. In England, you know, there's been various issues with flo- with flooding in particular, and in Australia and countries like Australia, as well as, you know, the, the subcontinent, Sri Lanka, India, Bangladesh and so on, and a heat during summer. And this affects the game in a couple of ways. One, at the very top level, it affects whether the game can be played and how safely it can be played, but that also... Um, sort of flows down to lower levels, um, which, you know, we don't often think about. But at the same time, if, you know, anyone driving around Melbourne on a 40-plus degree day in the middle of summer will notice great cricketers out there. And, you know, the physiological effects for elite athletes are one thing. But if you think about people who perhaps aren't as fit and don't play full-time and don't have access to the same science and medical facilities for top-level players, you can see the problems that arise as temperatures rise on average with, with climate change. But even amongst those professional cricket players, and yes, absolutely, there is a level of support that they, that they do get, but they're also starting to rally against uh, cricket authorities and in Australian um, context, Cricket Australia, taking money from fossil fuel industry. Yeah, and it's a, it's a complex picture because um, you're talking about professional athletes, and I'll give you the example of the campaigns um, that you're referring to in a sec, but it, it's a complex issue for them because, of course, these are the people who employ them. That's where their, their income comes from, and it's not like a professional cricketer can go choose a different employer if they happen to play in Australia. There's only one Cricket Australia. You can't go to an alternative unless you want to move to another country, and but at the same time, there's still rising consciousness among the players. Um, you've seen Pat Cummins' uh, launched last week, uh, Cricket for Climate, 
which is a campaign to install solar panels or solar energy um, on club and local facilities around the country. And you also see a campaign called the Cool Down, which is, it has cricketers in it, but is for athletes in any number, like a wide, wide range of sports across Australia um, at the very top level. And they're calling for, a, of course, a 50% cut uh, to carbon emissions by 2030 and net zero um, by 2050. And this is, of course, moving a bit faster than many of the, the leagues or associations would, would perhaps prefer, given their existing sponsorship arrangements, but it's also reflected internationally. And, you know, sport is a key site for what's termed sports washing, which I'm sure is a term some of your listeners or many of your listeners will be familiar with. But I, th- is... I think it's a, a great term to go over with us as well, too. So you have absolutely referred to sports washing just then. Can you talk us through what it really involves? Well, it's in, it's a term that, look, if you think about the forthcoming FIFA World Cup uh, for football in Qatar, you know, it's the idea of states. It starts from, with states sort of laundering their public image, English image internationally. And if you think about the various owners of English Premier League football clubs in the US, or even Melbourne City in this city, um, which is used effectively owned by the UAE state, which is a petrochemical state, with a frankly pretty, un, pretty embarrassing record on human rights. Um, but sports watching, of course, extends to other ways of improving, improving corporate image by of course, um, associating that brand with things or activities or pastimes or, or, or clubs that put, and, and sports that people have great affection for. And, you know, sports, sports fandom is an incredibly powerful emotional um, sort of relationship for a lot of people. And those brands, of course, benefit from those positive associations because you know, loyalty to one's club or one's sport is a very big thing for followers and fans. So, yeah, and as I say, for the fossil fuels industry, sports washing their image is a very big part. So Gazprom, in relation to the last football World Cup, you see Dow Chemical and the International Olympic Committee, uh, which is Dow being one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest plastic manufacturer, another oil-based product. And in Australia, as I say, Santos is uh, sponsoring various sports, including formerly tennis and cycling. And we see Alinta and its parent company in relation to cricket. That's an excellent explanation. Thanks for that, Brett. And you've drawn an example of tobacco advertising in the 1980s in your article on The Conversation, talking about always that potential for pushback against uh, against sports washing. And then more recently, too, with Tennis Australia. And then we also know, say, for instance, within AFL and different rugby codes within Australia, there's been pushback against uh, accepting money from the large um, bookmakers as well, too, or online gambling. Do you think we're likely to see a similar pushback across the board uh, when it comes to uh, fossil fuel advertising in sport? Uh, I think, well, as I say, eventually it appears inevitable to me if we're actually talking about a large-scale systemic change in the way our economies and societies function. Um, The alternative doesn't look particularly palatable to most people if you look at public opinion surveys. Um, Now, sitting alongside that is the problem of 
of course, you are talking about some of the, some incredibly wealthy and very, very powerful corporations, um, so the change won't be slow. But the same was said about the tobacco industry in the 80s in particular. I'm old enough to remember uh, that, that era. Um, I grew up in Sydney following what was then called the Winfield Cup, which is now the National Rugby League. Um, and, of course, this was just a natural state of affairs. You saw it in motor racing. You saw players at the AFL as well, uh, or what was then um, you know, a more Melbourne-based league as it began to nationalise. But I think with fossil fuels, you're starting to see you know, campaigns vote by investors to get out of um, you know, fossil fuels investment shareholding, shareholder activism, and I think you will see that flow through into the sports sponsorship market because it's just, you know, a quick example. Um, the school for climate strikes or the school climate strikes, of course, if you, if you think about young people in junior sport and a lot of the kids marching and good on them were, of course, they play junior sport. Sports leagues don't want negative associations with, with, with their activities. And I think over time we are seeing it roll out across the world. But actually banning it requires state inter- or government intervention. And I think most people would be aware this is unlikely to happen under our current government. Brett, thank you so much for your time, thought and analysis today and for coming on 3CR Breakfast. You're more than welcome. Thank you. That was Brett Hutchins from Monash University talking about the connection between fossil fuels and sport. It's 3CR Breakfast. Here is the war on drugs. It's a classic with red eyes. Coming up after this... Well, it is a incredible interview with John Olenodes. It follows very much so from what we were just chatting about with Brett. 3CR Breakfast.
obviously have breakfast. That's Red Eyes from the War on Drugs. I hope you're having a really good morning. It is Monday breakfast, and Monday breakfast means not only good music, but it also means excellent interviews where we cover the whole gamut of major topics that are really important when it comes to the environment, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to public health. Um, about to hear from John Nose, but uh, just as a reminder to all the listeners out there, you would have heard um, a little bit of audio earlier in the show from the Collingwood Children or Farm rallies, so rallies at the Collingwood Children's Farm to protect the Collingwood Community Gardens. Um, be hearing later from Annie on the line just with a bit of an update as to what's happening with the picket line there. Looking forward to hearing from her and also what efforts are needed over the next number of hours to really support and to save these Ah, these essential community gardens that are here in Melbourne. It is subscriber week. Subscribing is very easy. Go online, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. It's excellent um, thing to do. It's a way to get involved in the station. It's a way to be able to to shape um, the, the, the nature of programming, the nature of what we're doing as, as an organisation. And just as a reminder, on 3CR, you can hear all sorts of different community language programs, workers' perspectives, the LGBTIQA plus community, people with disabilities, First Nation voices, and alternative current affairs. A little bit like today's 3CR breakfast show. So we want to ensure that the station is shaped by your views, your perspectives, your input. Um, you can also call us to subscribe on 94198377. On the show, we've had a heavy focus on climate change and looking at environmental transitions. And we were just chatting before with Brett Hutchins looking at the relationship between fossil fuels and sport. Now, if we're going to limit the impact of climate change across the world, then countries will have to make the transition away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Here in Australia, it's difficult to be hopeful about this transitioning happening at the required pace and scale, with companies such as AGL dragging their feet on such change. Last week, AGL announced in their half-year market update that its brown coal-fired power station would close no later than 2045. Or to put another way, it may be open until 2045. This morning, we have John O'Lanose, CEO from Environment Victoria, to talk about this announcement. Good morning, Jono. Good morning. Jono, what are the implications of AGL's announcement that it would keep Loyang Power Station open until 2045? It's a good question because, on the one hand, keeping that power station open is absurd and dangerous from a bunch of reasons, like you pointed out. We need to be closing coal by 2030 at the latest to avoid the worst impacts of climate. And also, by the time they're, they're planning on closing it, it'd be 61 years old, which nobody uh, who knows anything about coal uh, would believe is economically viable, let alone physically possible. So it's absurd. But on the other hand, what are the implications? It's very hard to tell because it's so absurd. Nobody actually believes that this is what AGL will do. AGL doesn't believe that it's what it will do. So it's kind of just put, uh, you know, a bit of misty nonsense out into the air that, that not even its shareholders believe. So how do we, uh, what do we take from that? 
good question. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's a, it's a development that does definitely lead to a level of sleuthing that is required. We've looked a little bit today today at uh, different energy companies and you've talked about your fear that AGL is splitting off its coal assets in a greenwashing exercise. Now, we've talked a little bit today on the show about sports washing, um, but greenwashing, what does this look like in practice? Well, so let's wind back a year. Uh, AGL was, uh, its share price was in the toilet, as it still is, and the company was uh, facing facts that it needed a new corporate strategy, that being Australia's biggest polluter, uh, a, a position that it only occupied for a, about a decade, was was not a viable business model, partly because of consumer sentiment and societal attitudes and even the, uh, dare we say it, actually governments using some policy levers to get some climate action, but partly also because uh, as a big player in the energy market, the energy market shifting to renewables, because guess what, they don't use fuel so they don't have uh, any costs once you build them. But, you know, they have operating costs, but not, not compared to running coal, which you know, if it can keep digging out of the ground and refining and then burning. So they were getting pushed by a whole lot of uh, forces towards a cliff. Being Australia's biggest polluter wasn't going to be a viable con- concern for a, a while into the future. So, sorry for the long lead-up, but the story is they decided, well... Yeah, but we still think we can make some money out of these assets for a while longer. We still think we can sweat the, these three big coal-burning power stations, two in New South Wales, one in Victoria, that we bought essentially as, as windfall from privatisation. We think we can, we, we can sweat them for, for longer, so, but, but uh, that's probably not going to be good for the brand or the share price of the company overall. So let's split it into two. We'll come up with essentially new premium AGL that is a, a customer-focused retailing giant that sells internet and uh, increasingly clean energy and dirty AGL that runs Australia's biggest, oldest, clunkiest, most polluting power stations and will keep them running for a lot longer so we can keep those profits turning over uh, without uh, tarnishing our brand. Of course, they didn't call it dirty AGL, they called it ASL or Axel. Uh, and so this demerger and splitting into a, a clean image company and a dirty company is now underway. And this announcement was about supposedly how that's going to play out, uh, what the carbon footprint of those two companies is going to be into the future. The greenwashed one, AGL, and Axel that presumably will slowly fade into the distance once they've. Uh, extracted as much profit from it as they can, but because it's not consumer-facing, they don't really care about its brand. Uh, it's an all-too-familiar pattern. And if I'm channeling you correctly, it sounds as though so much of this is just motivated by greed. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, that's the core purpose of a for-profit-listed uh, company, is to generate profit. So that's that's not a not a great way to run an energy market. It's not a great way to provide a service that we all rely on and it's not a great way to plan a transition that impacts on uh, heavily on the Latrobe Valley but also on our entire economy. Uh, but yes, when you let companies get that big, uh, that is the motivating force you have in your energy and energy market. So with this underlying dynamic, 
What are your thoughts and views as to how we can keep the pressure on governments and, and also put the pressure very much directly on companies to ensure that power stations such as Loyang don't operate all of these years into the future? What are your hopes and what, what would you like to see um, uh, within the community and, and, and across government to really um, uh, shift direction on this front? Well, we've been part of um, supporting community voices in the Latrobe Valley that have always been concerned about the impacts of coal on their local community, but increasingly are also concerned about the the damage these companies will do on their way out. Uh, It's really important that the transition is led uh, and and really uh, we all listen to those people who have been literally at the coal face, um, both the workers in the coal companies, the traditional owners whose country has been dug up uh, and whose rivers have been diverted around and into these mines, and the broader community that's now living in the Latrobe Valley. And those, those people, we released some polling last week, the people of the Latrobe Valley are increasingly saying, we know the transition's coming, we're actually welcoming it, and what we want from governments, governments and power uh, companies is honesty about timelines, investment in new jobs, and us to have a say over what the future industries of our valley look like. And, and you've so, called specifically for the Latrobe Valley Authority to be funded post-June this year to facilitate a lot of that engagement as well too. Can you tell us a bit about the work of the authority and, and what you'd like to see here? Yeah, so, so look, you know, um, true to form, when Hazelwood closed, it was after a different company, Onji, uh, had denied that they were contemplating closure right up to the last minute and then suddenly, with about seven months' notice, said, we're pulling out of the valley. Uh, and the uh, government at the time, still the government of the day, the Andrews government, uh, announced uh, a very significant public investment in the valley, including the establishment of the Latrobe Valley Authority. That authority uh, really had three uh, functions. Immediate response, um, so supporting crisis support, financial counselling, job placement, uh, pool redundancies and so forth for workers directly impacted, recovery and capability building across the broader economy and then looking at regional growth and transformation into the future. That uh, initial investment ran out uh, partway through the pandemic, so the Latrobe Valley Authority uh, didn't have any ongoing funding. Uh, it was temporarily extended by the Andrews government as one of its in one of its COVID budgets, but it, its funding now expires in June this year. And the polling again that we did that we released shows very strongly that the people of the Latrobe Valley, it doesn't matter where they sit on matters of climate, want this authority to be uh, a long-term part of the Valley's future because there's three more power stations that are going to close, probably all in the next 10 years, and that's a huge impact on an economy that um, has been a resource economy for the last century. Jono, thank you so much for joining us on the show. If listeners would like to get involved and and show their support, where would you like to uh, direct them? Look, the, the simplest way, go to our, our website, environmentvictoria.org.au, and there's plenty about how you can stand in solidarity with the people of the Valley and get involved in our energy transition campaign. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Jono. Cheers. Thanks a lot.
That was Jono Leno, CEO from Environment Victoria. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. I hope you're having a good morning. We'll place all of those links that you've heard mentioned throughout today's show on our website, 3cr.org.au. It's also where you can go if you want to subscribe as well too and shape the direction of 3CR, get involved in the community and ensure uh, that um, we can continue to profile the causes of organisations such as Environment Victoria and uh, the uh, rally and the fight to ensure that here in Australia, here in Victoria, we do transition and move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Here is Madeline Peru. It's her tune, Don't Wait Too Long. I love it. It's beautiful. It's jazzy. It really, well, really captures a nice sense of ambience in a morning on a summery day. all about love it's madeline peru don't wait too long you're listening to 3cr breakfast my name's evan wallace and it is really lovely to have your company on the show uh, 
it's also lovely to have Jordana Hunter on the show as well too. The end of January, the Melbourne-based public policy think tank, the Grattan Institute, released its report, Making Time for Great Teaching, How Better Government Policy Can Help. The report draws attention to the time-based demands being faced by the current teacher workforce and the implication that this is having on the quality of education and teaching. Jordana Hunter is the Education Program Director from the Graden Institute, and she joins me to talk through the report's findings. How is your morning tracking along, Jordana? It's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Evan. Oh, I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that you're having a wonderful morning. Now, the report surveyed 5,442 Australian teachers and school leaders, and in this great report, you found that 90% of teachers stated that they don't have enough time to prepare effectively for classroom teaching. That sounds like a a far from ideal situation. Yeah, that's right. Look, we were really uh, worried by those findings. We know teacher workload concerns have been an issue for a long time, uh, but to see that, you know, nine out of 10 are feeling unprepared for the classroom when they step into that classroom each day is really troubling, not just because you know, that's uh, not a great feeling, I think, for teachers when they walk into the classroom. But also, if they're not getting time to prepare effectively for class, it's really hard for them to deliver effective teaching to students. And we think student learning is probably going to suffer as a result. One of the things I really liked about your report, Jordana, is some pretty clear-cut maths that's used. You've taken the model of the state government guidelines for how a Victorian secondary teacher should be using their time, and you show that Within the mix, there should be 20 hours for classroom instruction, eight hours for school duties and 10 hours for class preparation. But when we break down what those 10 hours look like and the actual demands that are associated with those other pockets, it really doesn't leave much time for preparation. That's right. So, you know, we uh, we spoke to a number of teachers in thinking about the report and preparing the survey. And one of the things that we heard from teachers, particularly English teachers and humanities teachers in secondary schools where they have a heavy marking load. They told us that, you know, by the time they've they've had a look at each student's essays or they've thought about their learning needs, they're really running out of time each week. So if they were to spend 15 minutes per student each week thinking about their essays, what they can do to boost their learning, keep them moving you know, keep them on track, they'd need 28 hours a week to get through the regular uh, student load for most secondary teachers. So 28 hours a week just for focusing on individual student needs, that doesn't include classroom duty, uh, extracurricular supervision, general class preparation, and obviously face-to-face teaching. So that's just really not possible. Um, Even if they were to spend half their preparation time thinking about individual student needs, that would leave them only three minutes per student. So that is a really challenging situation for a lot of teachers. And what we hear is that because they've got such limited time, they're simply not. It's simply not possible to give individual students, you know, the sort of uh, support that teachers might want to. What are teachers telling you are the greatest obstacles to effective preparation? That's a really great question. So we asked about a range of barriers that teachers face, and a number of things were raised. One of them was just around this idea that what we understand as effective teaching has become much more data-driven and clinical, and that sets a really high level of expectation for teachers in terms of preparation. Now, that's something that we think 
on the whole is a positive thing because, you know, it's important for teachers to understand where their students are at in their learning. And assessment data is actually a really powerful way of teachers doing that. But we have to make the job manageable in the standard hours each week. Otherwise, teachers are just going to get burnt out. The other thing we heard a lot of is that sometimes policymakers, political leaders try to solve all the problems of the world through schools. So there's a lot of new initiatives that come down expecting teachers to deal with a really broad range of issues that sometimes don't have a lot to do with classroom teaching and academic outcomes. Again, often these these issues that we're trying to tackle in schools, they're important social issues. So it makes a lot of sense in some ways for us to hope schools can deal with them. But we have to ask ourselves, is it reasonable, is it possible for teachers to tackle all of these broader issues? I'm thinking things like childhood obesity, uh, respectful relationships, uh, mental health challenges, all important issues to tackle. But we do have to stand back and say, are we supporting teachers to do this work in addition to the academic work that really is the core part of their job? Really essential question to ask and also super important to support teachers not burning out. What I found very interesting in the survey is that the more time that teachers spent in the classroom, the less time they have to prepare for effective teaching. What are your thoughts on that? That is a real challenge. And we do hear that that time where they're not in the classroom, particularly in term time, they face a lot of disruptions. So it's not just classroom teaching. It's also supervision of extracurricular duties, for example. So this was one thing that we heard a lot from teachers. There might be chess club, sports days, excursions, a range of other social activities at school that, of course, meet the needs of students for a well-rounded school experience. But teachers are spending a lot of time supervising these activities. We heard that 68% of teachers felt that those supervision activities could be done by someone who wasn't a teacher in a way that met the needs of students and kept them safe, but that could save teachers two hours a week, uh, which they could spend on preparation instead. And so that And it sounds like also, too, that the, the longer someone teaches for, so thinking about teachers who have been teaching for over 10 years versus those who might have only been teaching for a couple of years, that they're finding that actually experience and, and, and years of, of work doesn't actually really help in terms of creating those efficiencies as well, too. That's right. No, we did hear that. So that that came out really strongly in relation to lesson planning in particular. So sometimes we might think that, you know, once you've taught the same class for a few years, uh, you might have your materials settled, you know the content area really well, and perhaps you might feel more prepared for the classroom. I think that that may happen to some extent in some subjects, but what we heard from teachers in our survey was even those that had been teaching for more than 10 years still felt like they didn't have time for effective preparation. There might be a few reasons for that, but when you talk to teachers, what you'll hear is that often they do move between different subjects and different year levels and different schools. And every time a teacher makes that move or they get given a new subject to teach, sometimes they feel like they're starting from scratch. A lot of teachers uh, don't have uh, pre-prepared lesson materials that they can draw on in, in deciding how they're going to teach their kids in their classroom. So it's a big challenge to bring that together every time they're given a new assignment. So how would you like to see the situation change? Look, I think we see there are a couple of really key reform areas that we want governments to tackle, and this is an issue right across Australia, not just Victoria. 
The first is around letting teachers teach. So we think it's time that we understand and respect that the core job of the teaching profession is teaching and we need to think about how all the important work of schools gets done in a way where teachers can really focus on teaching, which requires a high level of expertise and that's what teachers are trained to deliver. So that will involve looking at the broader workforce in schools. There's a lot of non-teachers in schools and thinking about how that workforce can be used more effectively to free up teachers' time to focus on the classroom. That's the first thing. The second is really around curriculum and lesson planning. There's an urgent need, I think, to build high-quality uh, shared resources in schools. So that situation I was just talking about where a teacher is given a new teaching assignment, they're not starting from scratch. Teachers could save up to three hours a week based on our survey results if they had access to high-quality shared resources. I think there's an important role there for governments to play in building that ecosystem of shared resources for teachers to use. So they're two really concrete areas where we think change could happen quite quickly and in quite a cost-effective way that could really tackle some of this workload concern. Jordana, thank you so much for talking us through the report. I know that there is an event next week on Thursday, the 24th of February. It's an online event. That's right. It's a webinar. Anyone can sign up around the country. We'd love to you know, see as many people there as possible and there'll be opportunities to ask questions and hear from a number of other people about the challenges they've faced. Jordana, thanks so much for joining me on 3CR Breakfast and hope you have a really lovely morning. You too. Thanks, Evan. Jordana Hunter there, Education Director at the Graden Institute. You're listening to 3CR. Subscribe it today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. This, Be a part of um, your community radio station. Um, this is 3CR. I hope you're having a wonderful morning. And it is Subscriber Week. Um, Subscriber Week means it's your chance and your opportunity uh, to be able to, to get involved. Um, on the line, we have Annie from Solidarity Breakfast, who's joined by Giles Felt. You've, we've been following today and capturing the latest developments on the fight to save the Collingwood Community Gardens. Um, good morning to everyone there at the gardens. Oh, and I'll just take you off mute, and that, that should help. Good morning to you once more. G'day. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you nice and nice yeah, and yeah. clearly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we're down here at uh, the Collingwood Community Gardens, and we're defending the gardens from potential being bulldozed. Here, I've got Giles here who can talk to you a, a bit more about it. Thanks. Um, thank you so much there, Hanny. And Giles, Giles, tell us more about the efforts and what's happening today. Thanks. Hi. Um, we're just down at the gates uh, of the Collingwood Community Gardens and the children's farm uh, where they're adjacent. Uh, we have been here since about 7am this morning and we're waiting to see uh, if there's any construction workers on the site. It doesn't look like there uh, are at the moment, but we're committed to being here to make sure that no demolition begins of the, of the plots. The plots have been here for 43 years. The farm saying they're going to completely clear them um, based on a WorkSafe report that doesn't uh, require them to do that whatsoever from our reading of it. And so we're continuing to ask questions of the farm's committee of management 
uh, and, you know, why they've taken the course of action that they're taking, why they're refusing to speak to the community, why they're refusing to speak to the gardeners. Um, and so far we haven't heard from the farm this morning. We're hoping to, to speak to their, to their management and to, to ask them to stop the works until we've had a chance to have proper consultation, get back onto the site, get our stuff that's still been in the site for nine months, locked in there for nine months, uh, you know, talk about what the actual plan for the gardens are and have a say in the, in the plan for the gardens. We just want to fix the safety issues and get back in. There are a lot of listeners out there who'd be super concerned about development. What can they do if they're wanting to join the fight? Right, so we've set up a website over the weekend which has a form that allows you to sign up and uh, put your details in if you want to help out. So our website now is collingwoodcommunitygardens.org. If you visit that site, you'll be able to put your details in. We'll set up a Watch and Act um, group for... uh, a vigil around the site over the next few uh, days um, and, and pot- potentially the next few weeks. Uh, and if you had the time to come down and, and, and uh, be here with us uh, on the on the gates, that'd be that'd be great. So we're calling on all uh, supporters, uh, residents, locals of the area who um, care about the community gardens and who care about the Crown Lands Reserve around the Yarra River here. Um, and what's going to happen to it to come down and join us. And just for a reminder for all of our listeners out there, what are we, what are we standing to lose here, Giles? Well, this is 43 years of community gardening that's uh, started pretty much as a um, vernacular garden model, allotment garden model, migrants uh, in the post-war community. We've still got connections to some of those uh, migrant families that set up the gardens who are still here with us today, um, that's all going to be wiped out. They're going to, to put the gardens back to a to sort of ground zero and um, we're not sure what the plan is other than to sort of redevelop the site as something completely different, get rid of the allotments, get rid of the connections that the community has established with this site uh, and start again. So we're trying to stop that from happening. Giles, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing us the latest developments in the fight to save the Collingwood Community Gardens. Thanks so much for having me. That was Giles Felk, and a reminder to everyone out there, sign the petition, www.megaphone.org.au. And if you're in the mood for signing up to things too, sign up to become a subscriber for 3CR, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. My name's Evan Wallace. It's been lovely having your company this morning on the show. If you've missed anything or you're wanting to listen back to any interviews, all of the links, the podcast will be available on the website. We'll catch you this time next week, that's 7am on Monday the 21st of February for one more time on Monday Breakfast on 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.